Welcome to the Aporia podcast. Remember, you can listen to this podcast on all the major platforms. If you like the show, you'll love the Aporia magazine. Find the link in the show notes, along with our Twitter and a link to the bonus questions we ask our guests. Hi, I'm Paul Weingard with Aporia magazine, and today I am lucky to be joined by Heather McDonald. Heather McDonald is a tireless critic of erroneous narratives about policing an indefatigable dissident against new dogmas about race and diversity, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, her most recent book, perhaps her best, which is high praise, I will say, is a relentless data-driven attack on racial wokeism, Kendiism, progressivism, whatever we want to call it, called When Race Trumps Merit. Heather, I've been a longtime fan. Thank you so much for joining me. That's such an honor to hear both. Thank you so um, much. Let's get and admiration. Oh, thank you. Let's get right into it because there's so much to discuss with this book, which I, I really do think is a courageous and a very rich book. So maybe the the best way to start is just with sort of the general thesis of the book, like a you know, they say the elevator pitch, but this will be a long elevator ride pitch. <laughs> with with uh, it's especially focused on the, the important concepts, merit, race, and disparate impact. Well, we are tearing down the fundamental standards and values of Western civilization based on a lie. And that lie is that any racial disparity today is by definition and necessarily the product of racism and discrimination. So any standard that has what's known as a disparate impact on blacks, whether it's a teacher licensing exam, a medical doctor licensing exam, uh, enforcing the law, if any of those standards have a disparate impact on black resulting in either the underrepresentation of blacks in meritocratic institutions or the overrepresentation of blacks in the criminal justice system, the only public explanation that is allowable is that the standards resulting in that disparate impact are racist and the next step is they must come down. Uh, I argue that that assumption of racism as the explanation for racial disparities is wrong, that the far more plausible explanation for any disparities in representation are vast academic skills gaps on the one hand uh, when it comes to meritocratic institutions and vast gaps in rates of criminal offending when it comes to the criminal justice system. But as long as racism remains the only allowable explanation, we are going to continue tearing down ideas of excellence, of merit, of accomplishment, and moving towards, at best, a state of mediocrity in this civilization, and at worst, uh, one of risk to people's lives, stunted medical and scientific progress, uh, a, a, a mediocre judicious, judicial system, uh, you name it, and, and the inability to push young people to reach their highest uh, achievements and capacities. We see gifted and talented programs being torn down across the country not because they've been shown to be unsuccessful in cultivating our best young math talent, but simply because they don't have 13% black students in them. Therefore, again, 
per se racist have to do away with them. Yeah, so this is one of the most striking things about your book. And one of the things that I think is the most laudable and courageous about it, and I think is accurate, which is your claim is basically it's all about race. And that if we didn't have these race disparities, most of these things would just disappear. And this, I think, actually cuts against a lot of what mainstream conservatives want to claim. <laughs> so it does seem to me as well, and I, I've also made this argument, that it's it's really all about racial disparities. And, and even furthermore, it's about the fundamental lie that, in fact, right now, races are equal and that, therefore, any disparity must be racist, right? It must be caused by racism. I wonder, this is a general question too, before we get into more specifics, because you cover some interesting territory in your book, which I want to cover, but do you have a, a sort of general thesis about why it's race that is this just incredibly corrosive force and that is causing all of these downstream effects? Well, first of all, I just want to congratulate you for saying what I believe. Uh, so that's a little self-referential, but I completely agree with you that the dominant underlying subtext, if you will, or explicit overt text in our culture today is race. Conservatives are absolutely terrified of it. I sat in on a discussion from a prominent very conservative think tank, a Zoom discussion that was all about DEI this and DEI that. And never once did the participants say, the reason that we have this entire apparatus pretending that diversity is something that's so important is because we're trying to cover up the fact of these racial disparities. That this, Without racial disparities, as you say, nobody would give a damn that not everybody passes the medical school licensing right. exam. If if blacks passed at equal rates, we'd be saying, keep the damn exam. <laughs> it's right. only because blacks are not passing virtually every test of academic skills, whether it's the PSAT, the SAT, the GREs, the LSATs, the, the MCATs, the mm -hmm. GMATs, all of them have about a standard deviation in scores between blacks on the one hand and whites and Asians on the other, uh, and why we are both obsessed with race and terrified to talk about it is, I think, pretty obvious. Uh, we do have an understandable uh, bad faith, bad conscience with regards to America's racial mm -hmm. history. Uh, and it, I, I think, on the other hand, conservative histories of America tend to actually be whitewashes of how deep white supremacy was ingrained in the American psyche. To, to that extent only, I agree with the 1619 Project. I don't see how you can look at the quotidian treatment of blacks in the South and the North for decades and not say that white supremacy was something that was essential to the white personality and identity because of the gratuitous insults but so so our our concern and our our sense of responsibility for these gaps is understandable even though at this point i think that the responsibility for closing them lies almost exclusively and as a, as a practical matter 
uh, within the black community and they can only be closed within the black community. Mm -hmm. But as far as the further reason why people are so terrified of this topic is that they are terrified even of cultural explanations for those disparities. So we are including the elites, we are prophylactically setting up the only allowable explanation as racism. So you can't even go to culture, which is something new. In the 90s, people were talking about the barbarity of rap music and misogyny and the glorification of violence and, and dysfunction and, and a oppositional culture. But that soon became impossible. In the 1990s, you had sociologists like Elijah Anderson and Orlando Patterson writing about the oppositional, self-defeating inner city culture of gangsters and, again, the glorification of, of drug dealing, of, of drive-by shootings, of cop killing. Uh, and, and they basically suggested, sotto voce at least, that those were not functional values to have. Now you can't even talk about culture. But of course, the absolute specter hanging over this that many people are frankly not even aware of is the possibility that there is something heritable about the differences right. and that they will not close to the extent that one would want them to. My view is that is so toxic. There's much that can be done in changing the culture. Uh, we don't know how far we can go if we get rid of the anti-white, the anti-acting white syndrome. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on that. Or again, the problem is we can't focus on it. It has to be black leaders. See how far that brings us and then if necessary, we get to the heritability issue. So, yeah, so I, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to dwell on that one, but I would raise this question, which one idea that I've had, I don't know if this is correct, of course, but is that part of the reason that the conversation was, uh, it, it transformed for the worst, I would say, because as you said, like, like Bill Clinton could have this sister soldier moment. Could you imagine if a Republican did that today, it would be considered heinous, let alone a Democrat. But one of my concerns is that part of the reason that happened is actually because there was an underlying intuitive, I don't think it was conscious, but intuitive fear that maybe we can't actually solve these problems entirely through these cultural explanations. And as you say, it is a specter. It's a haunting specter that terrifies people that maybe we'll just find out that groups are a little bit different. Now, in my view, having immersed myself in this literature for a long time, I'm not so worried about that because I've become numb to it in some sense. But I understand that when I talk to other people, they're terrified by that. So I do wonder if like... Maybe we don't have to go too much into that, but I, cause I agree with you. Like, look, we can, let's go a long way with the cultural stuff, but I do wonder if there's that fear is actually like, well, these gaps didn't close. Are they really ever going to close? And then I think it, it behooves people like you and me to grapple with the honestly, with the, the possibility that maybe the gaps will never close. I'm not saying they won't shrink, but maybe there just literally will be gaps that we just have to live with. And and that's a possibility. And that's that's unpleasant to a lot of people's sensibility. Yeah, as I say, I'm just repeating myself. I do think that's not a necessary conversation yeah, now because fair. 
the behavioral differences are so glaring. Right. I mean, it's just if we could even get inner city teachers to break the code of silence right. and describe the hellhole that is inner city classrooms, you know, again, for disparate impact reasons, Obama administration accelerated this existing trend there. They shut down school discipline because allowing teachers and principals to impose penalties for insubordinate behavior resulted in vast disparities in the students getting disciplined with black students, you know, 10 times more likely to be suspended or expelled or, or sent out of the classroom for a few hours. And again, it's just absurd to think that the only allowable explanation that for that is teacher racism. Teacher ed schools are one long marination in multicultural indoctrination, yes. intersectionality theory, white privilege theory. Teachers are the most liberal profession in the country. And we're supposed to believe that they are gratuitously uh, subjecting black students to, to unmerited discipline. No, the black students, I mean, let's, let's, let's reason backwards. Uh, since the George Floyd race riots, blacks juveniles 17 and under are shot at 100 times the rate of white juveniles. Mm -hmm. yeah. 100 times. Who's shooting them? Not the police, not other whites. If that were the case, we would have heard of every single one of yes. those shootings, other yes. blacks. So what the, the family environment that is producing that astronomical mm -hmm. level of violent street crime commission, we're supposed to believe that those kids that are out there spraying bullets across city sidewalks because they have so little impulse control and respect for life, when they get in the classroom, are little angels of obedience. Come on, that's yes. insane. I've observed these classrooms. They are absolutely yes. hellish. The students have their backs to the teachers. So, you know, that we that needs to be changed and we need to break that code of silence. Um, and so, again, I would I would say that the behavioral disparities are so vast concert on that. I would also say this. I think I'm not I don't want to accuse you of naivete, but in my experience and, and I don't know if it records with uh -huh. yours, most people don't have any clue of the discourse around heritability. Yes. They are not aware of any of the data that has come out that may suggest that this is, there are, uh, you know, population differences. Mm -hmm. And I always get, if I'm giving a talk to conservatives, somebody will inevitably say, well, of course, we all know that you're not suggesting that any of this is mm -hmm. innate uh, and, and we move on. Yeah you know, to the next step in the argument. So I don't know to the, the degree to which uh, your average person is even that aware of, of this as a possibility. Yeah, that's that, you know, that's quite fair. I, I think probably we'd ultimately slightly disagree about this, but mostly agree. And it's, you know, it's a complicated topic. So let's talk about these disparities. And specifically, so I divided this just for convenience into an academic bucket into a, in a real world bucket. So in the academic bucket, I put humanities, law and medicine and science. And then in the real world, I put policing, 
orchestras, which is an interesting one that you cover. Now, I must admit that although I love music, I have no musical talent and cannot distinguish Haydn from Mozart. So I'm not going to get too much into that one because I can't speak intelligently about the aesthetics of music. But uh, policing, orchestras, other things like that in the real world. And I think policing is clearly the most important. So let's look at the, the academic one. So in, in, in academia, what are some of the worst consequences or the worst uh, things that are happening to attempt to promote this diversity, which, as you said, and I think we should call diversity what is, it is not a love of diversity. It is an unfair, racist policy that discriminates against whites and Asians in favor of blacks and Hispanics, because that's what it's actually doing. And the people, if, if meritocracy actually led to diversity, you wouldn't have people lauding diversity because they wouldn't have to. <laughs> so, right. so what do you think is like the, the, the destruction of our aesthetic, uh, our, our treasured heritage of, of great art and literature? This is something also you're sensitive to, which I am, which mo many people don't talk about. But like, I, I've just seen this get sullied and besmirched by this racial poppycock. And it's so tragic. So I don't know if you want to, I mean, that's a broad topic, but talk about like, parts of academia that have been destroyed or are being destroyed by this? Well, I would just second what you said. Any institution that tells you that it's embracing diversity has told you in code that it is jettisoning meritocracy because you cannot have both. You cannot have diversity and meritocracy at the same time, given the extent of the skills gap. So if you see anything close to 13% black representation, in a meritocratic institution based on academic skills, you know that there are more qualified candidates who have been uh, ignored and, and excluded uh, in order to get those quotas up. Uh, and I absolutely agree with you. You know, diversity is a ridiculous word. I frankly don't even like the conservative gambit of, well, what about intellectual diversity? <laughs> no, I don't even care about that. I don't care about diversity in any form. If, if a school, although I suppose, okay, if you push me, of course, the, the, the extraordinary uh, left-wing monolith that is higher education and more and more K, K through 12, that is a problem, but I'm very reluctant to go down the path of, of preferences for conservatives. Mm -hmm. So that's a very tough nut to, to crack. Um, but, but generally, I, I I, I think conservatives are wrong to try and co-opt the phrase diversity. So what is it? What's the effect of this? Well, first of all, we are discouraging our best white and Asian males from pursuing careers in the STEM fields, in medicine. They look around, they see what's happening. Uh, I get contacted by parents who say my son had near perfect MCAT scores. These are the medical college admissions test, the SAT version. Uh, you know, like the SAT equivalent for medical school admissions, you know, perfect GPA, great letters of recommendation, had done lab work. He didn't get into any of his first choice medical schools. He was waitlisted everywhere. Uh, I, I'm told of doctors in, in research hospitals that don't even put themselves forward to lead uh, cancer initiatives because they know uh, that they don't stand a chance. If you're a white male Jewish doctor, as one person said to me, an oncologist, like my career is over at this point. 
And this is really playing with fire. Uh, mediocrity matters. We are mediocritizing all of our institutions, whether it's just like being able to get customer service or airline efficiency, getting correct answers uh, to problems, but certainly in the pursuit of science, there are differences in competence and skills. And fundamentally, the diversity regime is profoundly nihilistic because it denies that there is differences in people's capacity. Well, there mm -hmm. are. Uh, and basically, you know, I know that on, on faculty hiring committee, it's, it's not as simple as people on the outside like me think. You know, there are ambiguities and trade-offs in, in finding the best possible candidate. But within those trade-offs of fit and, you know, faculty spouses and, and degrees of, uh, of research compatibility with existing people and personality, nevertheless, you can kind of tell who's got the scientific chops and who doesn't. I looked when I was writing the book, somebody sent me the finalist for a very, very high level uh, position leading a the cancer department in a very top medical school. And one candidate had an astounding research record, just cutting edge. He'd led massive scientific investigations, had been a uh, manager of, of large grants. And the other guy was a tenth of that. But of course, the other guy got it because he was mm -hmm. black. Now, somebody a layman can say, well, what difference does it matter? You know, if you, who, who's leading a medical team or a, a medical school or a department? It does matter. Those things matter. They can, the, the, somebody with knowledge of the field can decide what sort of research his department should pursue, can make distinctions among candidates. We're doing that all over the place. And if we think we can continue the astounding success of Western science that has liberated humanity from the squalor of what human existence has been up until this century. I mean, one, one advantage, you and I both love literature, Bo, and just read any 19th century novel and the descriptions of how people lived, especially in you know, the poor villages on the outskirts of the of the manor. Uh, but even within the manor, just with conditions that none of us could even imagine, we take for granted the beauty of being able to flip on a light switch, get electricity, get hot showers, have yes. clean water, get clean milk, uh, cell phones. It's all just amazing. It's totally amazing. We did that because we did not pull down our most qualified scientists. We celebrated them. We said, go to it, use your minds, you know, give us the best you've got. And now we are saying to the best and brightest, you are the wrong race and color. We're not, we're not interested in you. And that is a recipe for absolute civilizational decline. We can, so I've took, taken up very long no, no, on the no. sciences. That's, I think that's great. The arts, I mean, the arts is, is absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, we are teaching young people to hate some of the most sublime expressions of humanity mm -hmm. uh, on the on the facile grounds of sex and and race. And students are being taught that if a, an author does not share their preferred identities or chosen identities, that author is per se uh, oppressive and of little interest and possibly a cultural appropriator. 
and and it's giving an excuse to what is already profound and widespread ignorance on the part of young people. And my view is, I feel like we have a pressing obligation to keep those books alive. If, if people stop reading Milton's Paradise Lost, if they stop reading Alexander Pope or Homer or Aeschylus, those books essentially die. Mm -hmm. And it is on us. We are the un, undeserving inheritors of this civilizational legacy. We should be down on our knees before it. Literature professors should be down on their knees before it. Art museum directors should be down on their knees before it. The heads of symphony orchestras of opera companies should say, my only purpose in life is to persuade people that if they do not hear this music or read these books, they will die impoverished. And instead, these cowards, these absolute pusillanimous, nobody worthless and good for nothings have, in the, especially in the post-George Floyd world, have said, I preside over a racist institution and my mission as the Metropolitan Museum of Art or as the Chicago Institute of Art or as the Metropolitan Opera is to lead an anti-racist organization. And that is absolute poison if you want to bring young people in. Yeah, I mean, like one uh, imagines this kind of insouciance toward the past from like a dunderheaded teenager, right? Like, okay, yeah, of course. Right. But like, if you're a professor of literature, how can you not stand up to defend Keats, Wordsworth, Coleridge? Who cares that they were white men? I know. You know, it's interesting is that I when I was young, I, I used to find Harold Bloom a bit tedious or something. But now I revere him because he was this last great critic just defending the sublime against this identity nonsense which had pervaded the academy. So I have three points. I hope I don't take too much time, but you said a lot that was interesting and so the viewpoint diversity point, I think that's a great point, Heather, because I, I hate that the appropriate the conservatives attempting to appropriate progressive values. <laughs> like, it's like, no, I, I don't want more bad views. I, I mean, like, I think, of course, we need a dialectic. We need some debate, obviously. But like the, the problem with academia is that we have too many stupid views, too many wrong views. Right? <laughs> Uh, so that that's one. Now about the academic hiring, I, I just want to add some. So I did. I obviously I'll never be able to publish this, but uh, in 2022, so I guess last year it was. I looked at all of the psychology hires for the past two years. I I looked at their race and then I looked at their CVs, and I am telling you that. I would guess the average black applicant, when I quantified it, got about a 500% advantage judging from CV like quality, which is astonishing. And then finally about, let's just add some real world uh, uh, data to this, which you of course do too. I just want to add some. So, so we're talking about in science and the dangers of this and how this, you know, you talk about like, yeah, you read Dickens and you're like, my God, how did people live in this squalor? Nobody today has to live in right. that, thanks to the best and the brightest, right? Now, in, in jobs, we, we can look at this, because this has effects in the real world, not just in the academy. So the average K through 12 teacher, just to give an example, the average white K through 12 teacher has 110 IQ. The average black has 95 IQ. 95, that's below the white average. 
Now this has real, this has other effects. So for example, complaints in California for lawyers and complaints against doctors, although I don't have the exact uh, numbers, they're commensurate with these IQ differences, which are racial differences. So, because as you know, like what happens is these law schools, they accept subpar black students. They're not gonna fail them, right? So they have to graduate them. And then perhaps the most perverse thing about all of this, and this is something you talk about, I've heard you talk about it, honestly, which I commend because I think it's really important is it makes what most people would consider racism rational. And what I mean, so just to be clear about this, what I mean is if I'm going to get a neurosurgeon and I know that blacks Mm -hmm. are getting huge preferences, it is totally rational for me to think, you know what, maybe I'll go with the Asian neurosurgeon. Um, and now that would be considered racist by many people, but it is actually a rational response. I mean, what do you think about that and like how deleterious that is for a society in which you're making that like what would be considered racism completely rational? Well, that exact same mechanism is in play on college campuses when you have on the one hand, the dominant discourses. Uh, from the college presidents down through the, you know, professors and administrators, if you don't allow us to continue with racial preferences, uh, we won't be able to create our desired level of diversity. Everything will fall apart. We can't possibly use alternatives. You know, this was the argument of Harvard and and North Carolina in in the uh, recent Supreme Court case is that, oh yeah, you've got uh, what's his name, the, the socioeconomic preference guy coming up here and say, well, if you just use socioeconomic preferences or use, you know, the top 10% or top 5% plan, uh, that will give you diversity. And they're basically saying, no, it won't. It will bring in too many uh, poor whites and poor Asians who are better qualified than blacks. Uh, so on the one hand, we're told that racial preferences that entail massive, as you say, absolutely massive gaps in and, and, pre- and advantages catapulting people with very low academic skills ahead of those with very high ones. Uh, we're supposed to believe that is essential. And then if you say to any given black student, well, as Amy Wax did yes. purportedly, and she denies it, and she, I, whether she said it or not, you know, I, I'm going to take her at her word. But it is, of course, as you say, rational to assume that given this regime, any given black student may have been the, the product of, of preferences. If you say that you are engaged right. in just like racial genocide, <laughs> you're psychologically destroying this person. How dare you say right. that? Well, both propositions can't be the can't be true at the same time. So yes, uh, it is absolutely rational to fear uh, if you have a black doctor coming through the door that he has been on the accelerated elevator throughout that has allowed him to clear his peers with much lower grades and be catapulted not just into medical school but into residencies onto faculties into hospitals it's happening constantly i've only had the decision once i i wanted to go get some calluses on my foot sawed off and so i went to a a foot doctor podiatrist and I'm going to be very honest, a black woman walked through the door. And given what I know about the degree of preferences 
one pauses and I just decided it's not worth it. You know, it's not this critical a, a procedure, but I'm sorry, this is inevitable. And again, the, the 90s, I don't want to portray them as some golden age of racial honesty because I don't think they were, Pache, Jonathan Haidt and others, but you did have people like Stephen Carter at the Yale Law School writing books called Reflections of Affirmative Action Baby that said, anybody who's honest, any honest, self-aware black person has to always wonder whether he is the best candidate for the job that's been chosen or the best black candidate. And that kind of, of self-doubt uh, is the only rational response to to knowledge about the, the ubiquity of racial preferences. Right. And it's it's now importantly, like as we get more individuating data about a person, we can, of course, make a more individually right. tailored decision. But we're talking about, right. you know, you just see the person. You don't have information about this. So you're just going on these right. base rates. Um, now, th this in policing, which is something you you've written about for a long time now. In fact, when I first encountered your work, I, I in fact, I remember there was a Slate article that was basically like, I, I should, I should oh, confess, yeah. I used to be on the left, um, but I was always sort of heterodox. Oh, right. um, yeah. So, and, it, and I remember it was, you know, like Heather McDonald's a racist, but she has some pretty good arguments. So we should like kind of take her seriously. <laughs> and I remember, <laughs> I love yeah, that. and I got into your work from that. And it was, I mean, it was eye opening. But to be clear, I mean, of course, my first reaction was, oh, you know, Heather McDonald writes this stuff. Is it true? So I looked at other stuff, too, of course. And then I watched debates and whatnot. And then like, yeah, it is. It is just true. It, this has to be incredibly frustrating for you, I would think, that we're having these same, in, in fact, the conversation about policing has become even more stupid, if that's possible, right? <laughs> because like, the, 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 you get the sense from the left that the biggest danger to black people is renegade white cops running around their neighborhoods, shooting people. When the data are unambiguous, the biggest danger to blacks is other blacks, right? Now, what do you think? Ex I mean, I know we've kind of talked about what explains the stupidity of this 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 fatuous discourse, but is this frustrating for you? And can you just talk about like, especially post post Floyd, it got even like I, I think that was just like a there was like a quantum leap in stupidity, which I did not think possible before that. And I'm a pretty cynical, like morose person, but I was still surprised by it. So maybe talk about that and how many. Importantly, how many black lives this has cost? Because that's an important real cost that society is paying. Well, first of all, you read my mind yet again. Uh, I, get, I am absolutely fed up. Every time I write another article saying it's the crime, stupid, <laughs> you cannot understand police activity, whether it stops or arrests, without taking into account crime rates. Population is not the proper benchmark for measuring police arrests. You know, they don't, they don't, police don't determine their tactics or deployment based on population ratios in a figure in a city. They go to where people are being mowed down in these barbaric drive-by shootings, and that is in black neighborhoods. They cannot respond to crime without having a disparate impact on blacks. And I write this again and again, and every time I say, I'm never doing this again. I've 
I've exhausted myself. I have used the same arguments again and again and again. I'm sick of it. And then like there'll be some, you know, new outcropping of just, as you say, completely counterfactual narrative that is bizarre. I mean, it, you know, it, it occurred to me recently, if you were starting with some kind of Rawlsian initial condition and you were to imagine a race activist and say, okay, is the race activist going to take up the cause of black criminals or black victims as a civil rights issue? It's not obvious to me that the choice would be black criminals. Why not choose right. the cause of black victims? But in fact, every set, every race act advocacy action at this point, when it comes to policing, is all on beha behalf of these thugs. It's a very tragic statement about the state of our civil rights today that our civil rights heroes are these thugs who happen to get themselves shot by a cop because they were resisting arrest for a mm -hmm. crime. I mean, that's true of Michael Brown. It's true of George Floyd, Dante Wright. It's endless. There are very few of these civil rights martyrs that have even a millimeter of moral credibility the way that the heroic civil rights fighters of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s mm -hmm. did that were practicing nonviolence, that put up with the most awful, hateful white behavior, that were trying to conform to bourgeois norms in their dress, in their comportment. It's heartbreaking to see those photos. That's not what we've got today. Again, the oppositional culture has 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 dominated. Um, so uh, let me just first quickly just step back for the question about the sort of rational stereotyping. Sure. Um, and and I just want to add an a, sort of an addition to that, which is the case of the individual. Of course, and I know you're not right. denying this. There are thousands of people in the underperforming groups, i.e., blacks, who are outperforming individuals in the overperforming groups like whites yes. and Asians. You know, there's thousands of blacks that are whooping the ass of whites and <laughs> yes. Asians. So again, this is not a, a case by case uh, judgment. It is based on group right. averages. So absolutely. I just want to get that out there. Um, but as far as as far as back to policing, no, it's absolutely sickening. It's absolutely sickening. Uh, you know, blacks, I, I gave you the data before of, of black juveniles being yes. shot at at 100 times the rate well blacks between the ages of 10 and 24 are killed in gun homicide at 24 times the rate of whites in that age cohort these are just mind-boggling disparities and you would think again if you were a black activist you say whoa i gotta save me some black lives there's been dozens of black children in the most heartbreaking circumstances that have been gunned down one-year-olds six-month-olds three-year-olds nine-year-olds eleven-year-olds gunned down in their bedrooms, in their front yards, in their back porches, jumping on trampolines, in their parents' cars, at birthday parties, at barbecues, gunned down in in reckless gunfire, either killed outright or rendered brain dead for life. The Black Lives Matter activists have never once said the names of those children. We are never asked to say the names of Jaslyn Adams or, or, or legend Talaferro, ne never ever, 
because they're killed by blacks and therefore they don't count. So in this instance, I am willing to use the racism charge and say that, in fact, the media is racist. It doesn't value black lives. You know, Joy Reid had that claim about the black disappeared, black, black um, missing black victim syndrome or something when the whole country was going crazy about those two white, that white couple that had right. gotten lost in a national park. And she was right, frankly. Uh, the country does turn its eyes away from similar blacks in, in comparable situations. Certainly, I mean, a lot of them are prostitutes and drug addicts. And so that kind of is some barrier to empathy. But but nevertheless, uh, I, I often scratch my head and leaving even aside the race issue, try and figure out why does this murder get covered by the New York <laughs> Times and not that one? It's, it's a weird uh, a weird set of editorial judgments that are sometimes even more perplexing than the obvious uh, case that the Times and, and the left-wing media is only interested in black victims who've been killed by the police and and uh, or, or these alleged white supremacists. And before I get to your question about how many black lives have been taken, I also want to get some data out there about the white supremacist meme, which is certainly uh, Joe Biden's favorite meme, I think. I mean, he I ran so. on it. He, he, his inaugural speech was about white supremacists and the stain on white souls. And, you know, we've never gotten beyond this and that black parents are right to fear mm -hmm. that their children will be killed by a white person or a cop every time those children go outside. Here's the data on interracial violence. When you look at all interracial violence between blacks and whites and whites and blacks, and this excludes homicides because this is self-reported, blacks commit 87% of that. Uh, a black person is 35 times more likely to commit an act of violence against a white than a white is to commit an act of violence against a black person. We see these videos, we see the pictures. If you read the New York Post, uh, blacks are going around with the knockout game, the flash mobs, uh, you know, clubbing elderly Asians, stomping on them, running over white people, hitting their heads on fire hydrants. Again, this is, doesn't make white people comfortable to hear because we are so not white supremacists right. that we put up with the constant impugning of being white and the false charge that we're white supremacists. It doesn't make whites comfortable to talk about the fact that when it comes to interracial violence, there is a war on whites, but that is simply what the data tell us. Thousands more blacks died in the George Floyd year. You had a 29% increase in homicides nationally and the increase for blacks was like 35%, given that blacks are already over half of the nation's homicide victims, even though they're only 13% of the population, uh, that resulted in thousands more black lives lost to black on black homicide that nobody gives a damn about. Yeah, so yes, I agree with all of that. And would just, I, I wanna add that, um, I, I think this kind of anti-white attitude, and I, I used to hate to call it that because it just, it sounds like something, um, a caricature of a conservative saying anti, but it's true. It, it is true that it's there's true. just a casual anti-white attitude. And yeah. you get this even from uh, uh, President Obama, who who was sort of applauded for being this this moderate, but his rhetoric was so casually mendacious about these race issues that it was infuriating. In some ways, it was almost more um, insidious because it seemed so 
temperate. <laughs> and that tells you how pervasive this myth is. So I remember Emily Bazelon in a, in a slate, I listened to, because I try to listen to people from all sides of the, the perspective, you know, all, all sides of political issues. But she was saying how, if you're a, a, a black man, it's legitimate to be terrified of police and just to be worried about them. And that's just like a, a perfectly legitimate attitude. And I was thinking, Emily, your argument would suggest that it's perfectly legitimate for a white person to be terrified by a black person. But of course, you would right. never accept that generalization. And in fact, that generalization is much more rational because the number of whites, or I'm sorry, the number of blacks who are killed who are unarmed by police. There are tragic examples of this. By the way, white people also get shot, and that's also tragic. But you're talking 15 people a year, right? Again, I don't want to make light of that. That's every one of those, an infinite tragedy for the family. But that's a very small number, realistically speaking. Now, did you... Um, I'm, I'm embarrassed that I don't actually know this for sure, but did you coin the term Ferguson effect or were you just, okay. And you were certainly the, one of the most, uh, uh, what would I say, persuasive advocates of this theory. So could you explain that? Because I think the Floyd effect is just another version of the Ferguson effect. So what was your hypothesis there? Which I remember the, the, the media basically went from, this is racist to like, yeah, it's true, but it's so obvious. Like, why are we you know kind of saying this or whatever? Um, so what is the Ferguson effect? And then like, what is the Floyd effect? Well, I don't actually remember the media ever saying that there's a connection between depolicing yeah, maybe they and did crime. Maybe, cons maybe conservative media got to the point where they did. Yeah. Yeah. So the Ferguson effect was, you know, I noticed this after the uh, Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri in, in August of 2014. This was the hands up, don't shoot myth. Uh, perpetrated by by Brown's friend John Don, Johnson, his name was I don't remember his first name, uh, that just started spewing out an ab, a whole series of lies about the confrontation between this Michael Brown, like 250 pounds, who just stolen a box of cigarillos from a convenience store and beaten up the clerk, and then was threatening the the law the uh, Ferguson police officer, um, and so you had this notion that. You know, Brown was just passive and 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 uh, surrendering, which he was not. He was trying to grab the officer's gun. You had a a, a, a fiction about oh, they left Brown on the ground for four hours because they didn't care about Black life. No, they were so worried about the riots that were breaking out, they couldn't get the safely get the uh, emergency responders in to to take care of the guy. Uh, but anyway, so this resulted triggered the usual race riots, anti-police riots, three three waves of them, and the message was sent uh, by Obama and others that this was the result of police racism, uh, and that he wouldn't, you know, Brown was a, a martyr again, a civil rights martyr. Then eventually, uh, the uh, Obama's own Justice Department did a very very thorough response mm -hmm. and. Uh, investigation and found that everything that the media had said about the Michael Brown shooting was completely wrong. Uh, and there was no credibility to the idea that this represented some kind of racist attack on Brown. Nevertheless, the, the discourse got pumped up that the police were systemically biased, that we were living through an epidemic of racially biased police shootings of black men. 
And the police, under that narrative and under the resulting hostility they were getting in the streets when they'd get out of their cars, James Comey, he gave a speech in, in University of Chicago Law School in October, September of 2015, saying, folks, we got a real problem here. Uh, cops are, are being passive. They're not, they don't want to get out of their car and face people that are, you know, cursing at them, throwing things at them. Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago, said our cops have gone fetal. Mm -hmm. uh, they fear that if they do have to use force, whether it's deadly or non-deadly, against a resisting suspect, and that's caught on video, and that video goes viral, their career is at, at risk. So they, the cops became passive. They, they gave up on the discretionary proactive policing that is really essential to fighting mm -hmm. crime. You don't wait until somebody's been robbed and then go and take a police report. What you try to do is use your powers of observation to see, does this person look like he's casing a suspect and, and intervene and ask a few questions. Cops stopped doing that, car stops dropped, and you had between 2015 and 2016 was the largest two-year increase in homicide in 50 years. The result, predictable as usual, it was black lives were lost. So that was Ferguson effect 2.1, the, the combined effect of police backing off and the resulting emboldening of criminals who know that they have a much lower chance of getting stopped and questioned uh, because the police are too terrified to get out of their cars because they might face career-ending uh, ramifications. Mm -hmm. So George Floyd was either Ferguson effect 2.0 or the Minneapolis effect, but it was absolutely, as you say, uh, exponentially more insane where you had every institution in the country, whether it was art museums or symphony orchestras or law firms or restaurants, uh, you know, banks, science labs, chemistry departments, all churning out like within days of the George Floyd onset of the riots, statements about the, the, the scourge of systemic racism in this country, particularly as it applies to police. And the drop off in stops and arrests was just as huge. Cops were ordered by their chiefs not to make car stops. We still have that. The rate of fatal car accidents has spiraled since George mm -hmm. Floyd, who's been killed the same. It's always blacks because the, the, the rate of driving infractions in inner cities is through the roof. Uh, it's I'm sorry, there's like very few types of laws that blacks do not commit at higher rates and traffic violations are not among those. They blacks speed at higher rates. They run red lights at higher rates. There's a video that I write about in the book of a, of a principal in North Minneapolis after the George Floyd race riots complaining about the insane driving that is putting her high school students at risk. This is in the inner mm -hmm. city. Um, so you had police ordered to back off of policing. You had prosecutors setting aside entire categories of crime for the usual disparate impact reason, because if they do enforce uh, trespass or resisting arrest or theft, uh, you know, uh, turnstile jumping, fare evasion, disorderly conduct in a colorblind, neutral constitutional manner, they will, again, as always, have a disparate impact on blacks. And we've somehow decided that we would rather not enforce the law at all than do so in a colorblind fashion and have it and put more blacks mm -hmm. in prison. I just want to quickly get back to your point about reluctance to say that we're anti-white. Mm -hmm. 
I, at this point, have no reluctance <laughs> to say that. It is obviously yes. the case. Whites are utterly self-canceling. Western civilization is self-canceling. I've never seen anything right. like it. And whites are so indifferent or, or oblivious to this or accepting of it and feeling like they deserve it that they don't even notice mm -hmm. it. The Biden inauguration speech was greeted across the political spectrum by conservatives as well as liberals as unifying. You know, he's transcending our differences. No, excuse me, Biden was using his same anti-white races, uh, anti-white language in that inauguration speech, but whites don't even hear it at this point. They sort of assume it is absolutely normal for the New York Times to use the epithet white to discredit any individual or any institution. All you have to do if you're the Washington Post or the New York Times and you want to say this person does not deserve credence or, or respect is to say he's white because now you have tarred him almost indelibly yeah. as a racist. Yeah. And you know what? I, I, I feel personally chastened because I remember watching that Biden speech and thinking this is pretty unifying. And then I, I rewatched it <laughs> <laughs> like two years. So like a little bit ago and I was like, what was I thinking? Um, and I think, I, I think it's wow. exactly because of what you said, because I'm just inured to a world in which casual anti-white racism, like that, that, that is the proverbial yeah. sea we swim in. So you're just so used to it that if you get a minor right. dose of it, you're like, yeah, it's not so bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like I was reading an article today at the ringer about the law, uh, lost in translation, this excellent Sofia Coppola film. And it was it was criticizing it for being racist because it was the movie makes fun of like cultural disparities between you know white Americans and Japanese people and it's just like really that's racist to notice that yeah there are cultural differences and we can laugh about those it's just it's a it's bizarre so I, you've been so generous with your time I have bonus questions I want to get to but I do want to just touch on one thing before we end this part which is because I think we're both generally conservative, although perhaps heterodox conservative. And I want to I want to see what you think about this, because in many ways, I'm more disappointed with the conservative movement about these issues, because the, these are issues like if you go to the National Review, I, I, I subscribe to the National Review. I, I like a lot of the writers there. I'm not criticizing them personally, but like and you've you've written articles there, but their dereliction on the issue of race, it, it, it's, in my yeah. view, it, it, it's appalling. It, 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 it's odious, in fact, because they should be pushing back against this and they should be honest about this. And in fact, we our, our conservative m movement is so ineffectual that like when you get the one person who, in my opinion, I'm not going to get too into like my personal who I'm going to vote for or whatever, but like, you know, Trump's a pretty boorish person. I, I think people are attracted to him, though, because at least he's out there saying, like, F off. And, and people are just angry. And they don't have a mainstream, more prudential, judicious, conservative outlet to turn to. That I mean, City Journal is pretty good. I, I will get or where you I think you've written a number of articles there. But just in general, can you comment that on that and like the failure of mainstream conservatives to grapple with these issues? Well, this is a very live debate right now uh, because you've had Christopher Rufo attack Vidare 
for allegedly playing white identity mm, politics. I didn't see that. And Rufo, okay. Oh yeah, uh, Rufo wrote an article in, in City mm. Journal criticizing Vidare and other uh, groups, mm -hmm. and and he's taking the high, you know, the high moral ground and saying we we should not cast this in terms of identity mm. grounds, and you know we should move towards universals and don't move through any stage of white identity politics. Mm -hmm. um, I understand that you know as a debating tactic, and and I have no reason to doubt his sincerity in believing that. Uh, and I, I can tell you, you know, I do not flinch from using the word white in national media. Mm -hmm. I've done it on, you know, when Tucker Carlson's show on Fox still existed, I would talk about the war on whites. But when you do that, you can feel that you are absolutely uh, violating a taboo. Yes. You can only use white in a negative con context. And if you use white in anything other than a negative context to say that there are white interests uh, or, or at least an attack on a civilization that is hated because it is deemed too white right. and too male, uh, you are really, really playing with fire from the conservative end. And so it's a, you know, it's an empirical question. Can we beat back this destructive and ignorant and just egregiously uh, no nothing attack on Western civilization, an attack that is never lodged against any other civilization. This is the other thing that needs to be said. We, our, our opinion leaders, our, our thought leaders, now inevitably apply the deconstructive hermeneutics of suspicion to the products of Western culture. They'll always, you know, show this, this the subtext of this gorgeous. Dutch Baroque still life is slavery, and you've got to see colonialism in these these exquisite uh, pewter plates and crystal glasses and 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 translucent grape skins and lemons. You should only see that as a product of slavery. Whereas they go and look at African art, and they never would say, you know, this this Benin bronze is celebrating. A, a, a warrior king who routinely engaged in genocide and child sacrifice and, you know, tried to destroy his his enemy tribes with as much cruelty as possible, or they would never deconstruct Chinese or, or Japanese art. Only the West is engaged in self-cancellation. And it goes without saying, those other cultures are also not self-critical. I'll be willing to pay reparations when I see African leaders say, will pay reparations to the slaves that our ancestors were complicitous in, in right. you know, bringing to the Western coast and loading up on the slave ships. You know, this was a completely mutual uh, endeavor uh, among the power elites. So in any case, it's just it's it's utterly disgusting uh, the way that the white civilization is the only one going around self canceling. So I agree with you. I think I think conservative media uh, I don't know whether they are the, the degree to which it is conscious. You know, this is always the inevitable question one gets on a range of right. issues. Do they really believe right. it? You know, how, what do you think they yeah. think? You know, and I never really know. Yeah. I tend to believe they believe it. I don't. I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I don't think there's like a whole lot of second order thinking. I think people do believe ideology. But when it comes to the conservative terror of talking about racial differences. Um, I, I don't know if they're just
blind to the fact that this is, I completely agree with you. I mean, that that's the theme of our conversation. The race problem, I think, is driving everything that is the most important in our culture today, with obviously very strong competition from the impenetrable insanity of the trans movement. Yeah, that's, that's like a... Yeah, that's a remarkable thing that deserves its own two-hour podcast. But to, to, two things. One, I think the important thing about this is that, as you noted, the, the cancelization of, say, Swinburne and, and Tennyson and, you know, these Baroque pieces of art, etc. It's because they're white. It is yeah. an identity-based cancelization. And so I, I guess my... My concern with the high road idea is that the other side's not playing by the high road. They're, they're right. explicitly engaged in an identity battle. Yep. And I don't want right. to surrender to that. <laughs> and if I so, so that's where I get a little, you know, I get a little vexed with those who claim like, look, it's a white civilization. It just is. And that's why they hate it. And I, I want to defend them. Right. And also, right, absolutely, um, absolutely. To this, but I can tell you, I mean, I've just watched this again. Like Rufo had a somebody uh, tried to bait him to say, "Are you proud of yes. being white?" And he said, yes, "No, I'm I not. You know, that. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> I, I'm not." Um, yeah. And I mean, one could say that's not the issue. I'm proud of being the inheritor of Western yes. civilization, which happens to be right. white. But you know, I, I I agree with you. Like, it's only logical. If every other group gets identity yeah. politics, how much longer are whites going to be the only ones that are above the right. fray, you know, taking it on the chin all the time? So, you know, I don't know, like, what are the numbers? Who are the, Now, Ben Shapiro is, I admire him. I think he's brilliant, but he also is very careful about yes. race. But how many followers are, how many sort of young males and, you know, doesn't have to be white are, are following these internet personalities, can they be harvested and turned into a political force to just say, we're not taking this bullshit any right. longer? Well, that that's my goal. I can tell you that as, as far as like the culture war stuff goes. I mean, like personally, I admire how indefatigable you are because I find some of the culture war really tedious. Like personally, I'd rather sit in my room and read, you know, Ode on a Nightingale and feel good about life. <laughs> but that's white culture. And then I want to defend that. And then I read literary criticism and it maddens me because it's it's all identity obsessed now. The other thing I was going right. to say about this though, or about the point that you made, I I, I believe in, in being charitable and taking people at their word. However, I can tell you, having been in academia, I experienced this bizarre world in which what people would say publicly was very different uh -huh. from what they would say privately. So I've become very skeptical of what people say because these professors would say, oh, yeah, like, yes, there are these differences. We should yeah, think seriously about them. But then in public, they either wouldn't talk about it or they would literally condemn people for talking about it. It, it, it was incredibly frustrating, as you can imagine, but also it taught me to be a bit skeptical. I think there's a lot more conscious duplicity, like people understand like, hey, if I want to have influence, then I can't say these things. And and like, this is one of the things that impresses me about you is you seem to have gotten to the I don't give an F point of 
look, I'm going to talk. I always say, so I applaud that. No, I've taken much of your time. Let's do the bonus questions because those are kind of fun. So uh, first, what? Is, so we we ridicule a lot of people and whatever, and we both like good debate. So who who's like a, a person who's good at criticizing your worldview, or at least promotes a worldview that's you know somewhat different from yours, but who does so in an effective way that you're like, huh? Well, that's at least a good argument.